0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 127, by Rudolf Steiner, translated by Matthew Barton, entitled The Mission of the New Spirit Revelation, The Pivotal Nature of the Christ Event in Earth Evolution, I believe it is 16 16 lectures, this is Lecture 2, entitled The Effect of Moral Qualities on Karma, given in Wiesbaden on the 7th of January, 1911. In the course of our spiritual scientific reflections, which often, after all, lead us into very lofty heights of existence, it is surely sometimes a good idea to take a look at daily life, this life that continually surrounds us. With a little goodwill and perspicacity, you see the application of spiritual science to daily life can give us very important insights into the truth and cogency of what we seek in this realm. What we call karma, preceding factors that have a causative effect in a succeeding life, is doubtless amongst the most important teachings we meet in the field of spiritual science. Now in most cases where karma is mentioned, the anthroposophist no doubt thinks of causes that originate in previous lives, and those, therefore, who are still highly skeptical, about spiritual scientific endeavors can easily ask how such things can be proven. Of course we basically know that such an objection is childish. If we take the trouble to delve deeper into what spiritual science offers us, we can discover that everything that can be said about karma is in fact well-founded. And yet it is also good to point to experiences and observations accessible even to those who are far from developing clairvoyant faculties or from espousing anthroposophical methods of observation. Understood rightly, you see, karma does not only proceed from a previous life and act causatively in this one, but also is very much at work already within a single life. It is just that ordinarily the span of our observation in life is so short that not much can be detected of how earlier causes create subsequent effects. If we consider a period of five or six years, nothing much will emerge from this. But if we observe longer spans of time, even between birth and death in a single life, as far as this is possible, we can find much evidence already of the workings of karma. We can discern this even in very outward matters. These introductory words are not intended as something especially anthroposophical in nature. I wish only to show that even for the most ordinary things, larger spans of time are necessary for discovering connections of cause and effect. I, myself, have had much opportunity to observe children. I taught children, though it was a long time ago. But if you have taught four children in a family over many years— You have an opportunity not only to observe these four children themselves, but also the children of family friends, and so on. You are well placed to see what any of these children do or what is done with them. Back then a particular medical condition existed, which, thank goodness, is now very much on the wane, and it was thought necessary to strengthen the little ones by giving them a small glass of red wine not just at one meal, but at several meals. This was thought an excellent idea. I was able to observe many children who were raised on red wine in this way, and other children whose parents declined to do this. The children who were aged two and a half to four at the time are now over thirty, or close to forty. And you can see that the children treated with red wine, supposedly to strengthen them, have become fidgety nervous people. There is a marked difference for those who wish to observe it between them and the children who did not drink red wine when they were young. Almost a quarter of a century is necessary, it turns out, to be able to observe this. In the same way, it is particularly important to consider longer spans of time when studying karmic consequences involving human moral and ethical qualities. Today I want to point to a few such qualities and their effect upon the soul, upon the sensibility, the workings of karma, even within a single life. I would like to consider several good and several bad qualities, envy, jealousy, mendacity, then benevolence, and something we find so often in younger people, wonder, wonderment, and similar things. So let us first take the negative qualities of jealousy and deceitfulness. Let us assume that we discern jealousy or envy in a child. From our spiritual scientific observations, we know that particular powers are at work in the bodies that constitute our being, of which we are normally unaware, in the astral body and etheric body. Luciferic powers in the astral body aramonic powers in the etheric body. These powers are adversaries to human evolution. Everything related to the astral body, such as jealousy, comes from the temptations of Lucifer. Everything related to the etheric body, such as deceitfulness, involves the temptations of aramon. In a jealous child, Lucifer has seized the astral body in a sense, Here the Luciferic powers have their point of entry. It is a singular fact that everyone from the most primitive peoples to the most evolved leaders of humanity regard jealousy and deceitfulness as reprehensible qualities. The moment someone recognizes they are jealous or deceitful, a sense rises within them of a very objectionable nature of these qualities and they will seek to do all in their power, to rid themselves of such feelings. Envy and deceitfulness, jealousy and lies are instinctively felt to be wrong. Goethe says that he finds in himself many faults upon deep self-examination, but no hint of jealousy. Benvenuto Cellini says the same thing about mendacity. If someone notices that they are a jealous person, they will instinctively do what they can to rid themselves of this habit. Jealousy is a Luciferic quality. If someone sees that they have a tendency to jealousy and therefore works to rid themselves of this habit, Lucifer will say, quote, There is a danger this person will evade me. Close quote. Both Lucifer and Aramon harbor equal enmity for the human being, but themselves are bosom friends. So in this case, Lucifer will call upon Aramon for help, and he will transform the envy into another quality. Envy undergoes a metamorphosis, one that turns the person who previously begrudged another something into a fierce critic, who seeks for everything and anything in the other that can be condemned. This urgent need to find fault is nothing other than transformed envy. And when this happens, Ahriman has you in his grasp. This transformed envy is very widespread. If it did not exist in the form of critical gossip, an urge to say bad things about others, many social gatherings would fall silent for lack of subject matter. In terms of karma, Interestingly, jealousy in its original form, or in its metamorphosis as criticism, leads to the same consequence. If you study someone who is jealous in their youth or highly critical of others, you will see that those consumed by jealousy in youth become uncertain in their later years. They can find no solid ground, find it hard to relate to others, cannot rely on their own counsel are glad when someone else advises them what to do. In a single life already this is karmic consequence both of jealousy and its metamorphosis. Lying is a quality in hearing in the etheric body and originates from Araman. If at a certain age a person becomes an habitual liar or if they lie a lot due to bad upbringing, in later years this will always manifest as a certain shyness, an inability to be straight with others. Certain moral proverbs are spot-on in this respect. Quote, he can't look me in the eye, close quote, is one such saying, referring to a deceitful quality. Shyness and lack of independence emerge as sole qualities within a single life. If we try to observe life in the same way that a physicist say, observes the outward course of the world, we can discover these things and they illumine our understanding of life. The consequence of such a quality resides within the mind and soul in one life. But if, through spiritual science, we trace the effects of one life into the next, we find that the karmic effect apparent within the soul in one life acquires greater power in the next. Here we can demonstrate that lack of independence, appearing as the soul, S-O-U-L, consequence of jealousy in one life, and shyness as the effect of deceitfulness, come to be formative upon the structure of the body in the next life. Here they take a hold upon our corporeal nature. People who were very envious in a former life, will be reborn with an outward bodily organization that renders them helpless. Those who lied a lot will be reborn with no proper relationship to the surrounding world. They cannot be loved by the people around them and feel rejected by them. It is hard for love to enter their lives. Spiritual science must be regarded as pragmatic. What I am saying now has direct, practical repercussions. Let us assume that a child we know cannot develop a relationship with us, that it withdraws from us in timidity, or that this child is weak and pale. The anthroposophist will say this pallid frailty, the disposition to all kinds of illnesses, has to be ascribed to an envious disposition in the previous incarnation and shyness can be ascribed to deceitfulness. But it is not by accident that this child is born in our circles, for an individual can only be placed into a situation that belongs to them. Before long, people will come to recognize the law of karma as self-evident. People are born into circumstances to which they belong. Frailty and helplessness are the consequences of envy in a former life and we are connected with this child because it envied us. It comes to us in its new being because we are the ones to whom this being lied so often in a former incarnation. How should we behave in such a case? There is no need for long reflections here, for we should behave in the most moral and ethical way also in ordinary life. When a person envies us or criticizes us about everything, it is best to meet them with benevolence and love. That is the best conduct. In our unnatural, materialistic times, of course, this cannot always be done. But it is the best way to behave toward a child who is born with these particular kinds of disposition. As well as recognizing that this child envied us or lied to us in a former incarnation, we take the firm resolve to show this child especial benevolence. Let us summon a warm feeling for such conduct. Try to observe these things, and you will find that the cheeks of such a child can start to grow red, that the child begins to strengthen. We must simply keep behaving to it in this way. The same is true of deceitfulness. Someone who lies to us the whole time is best served if we do all in our power to give them a resonant sense of the love of truth. If we behave like this toward a shy or timid child, we will find that we effectively counter any increase in the conflict. And so we find that we can do life enormous services. This is an example of how spiritual science can have practical results. We should never forget that we can keep on finding evidence of the workings of karma everywhere. And similarly, we should always remember, especially when such children are entrusted to our care, that we are here given the means to show how spiritual science has gone deep into our very being. We can consider other qualities, too, in the light of spiritual science. For example, wonder, astonishment. The ancient Greek philosophers heeded a fine instinct when they said that philosophy starts with wonder. What is this quality, really? We meet the phenomena around us with wonder and amazement. Then, sometimes, too, this wonder is replaced by something different when we start to understand the realities that first astonished us. So, Let us now ask about the nature of this wonder. We encounter a phenomenon, and it elicits wonder from us. Here there is no relationship yet with our reason and intelligence, since these latter seek understanding and do not express themselves in wonder. The relationship we have with things through wonder is far more immediate. Understanding concerns itself with analysis of constitutive parts, whereas wonder arises directly in response to the whole of a phenomenon. The reason for this is that understanding, reason, involves the I, capital, in relationship to what is observed, whereas wonder involves the astral body. The latter is not fully conscious, it is a kind of subconscious. When the astral body has a relationship to a phenomenon and this relationship does not as yet raise itself to the level of the eye, wonder appears. It is because we can feel wonder about something that we can enter into a connection with it that lies below the threshold of consciousness. This subconscious connection is in many cases very important in the same way that the ancient Greeks regarded wonder as an important prelude to philosophy. It is good for people to encompass something with their astral body before they apply their intelligence to it. This creates a foundation in their feelings and sensibility into which understanding can immerse itself. This is quite different from tackling something rationally from the outset and means that we greatly broaden the basis of our understanding. In turn, this leads to richer, fuller understanding. This is why it is so important for a teacher first to develop a sacred wonder toward the child, toward the child's individuality, which surfaces, as it were, from darkness, to keep an open mind for things we cannot survey at all with our intelligence alone, the infinite depths of an individual. Encountering this individual, we intentionally engender a sense of wonder in ourselves. This wonder will come, for there is always rich opportunity for wonder and amazement toward each person. These feelings are not spoiled by our narrower intellect, but are sometimes much surer, richer, truer than what is grasped by the narrow intellect. The foundations for insights we can apply to practical life can be gained through wonder, through our life of feeling. And something very important depends on this, the trust that one person feels toward another. It's true, isn't it, that we can often feel trust or mistrust in someone, for the negative is equally true, before we encompass them in thoughts and concepts with our rational mind, People often regret that they didn't, quote, trust their instincts, close quote, their first impressions, instead overriding truer inklings. And they are often right to say this. Our social relations, our relationship to life, should grow forth from our feelings and sensibility. Some people are little disposed to feel such vague intimations. There are those who can gaze up at the starry heavens for hours on end without knowing much about astronomy, while others remain unmoved by such a sight until they read a book that can explain it all to them. The latter lack this feeling foundation, and can also often pass others by insensibly until or unless they find sufficient time to bring intellectual analysis to bear on them. This is also apparent in people's reaction to spiritual science. Really, we can only speak of someone's reason in their earliest youth. Later it becomes impossible, for reasons cited by Goethe. You can't, he says, persuade people their assertions are untrue, for their view is based on holding true what is false. If someone feels that there is in spiritual science something that fulfills their whole longing they will always be able to find logical proofs that can be found everywhere. Things are basically very clear. They need only be seen in the light of a spiritual outlook. Let us imagine that in youth a person encounters someone older and feels a sacred reverence for them without knowing exactly what elicits this feeling. If we consider the broad feeling disposition such a person possesses, We will find they stay youthful for a long time, that a young heart beats in their breast even when their hair has long since turned gray. They retain a certain mobility in life. In particular, they retain throughout life a capacity to adapt quickly to situations, to be skilled in the way they meet all circumstances. Someone who opens themselves so fully to life when they are young finds that life opens before them increasingly in their later life. They become ever more able to gain insights, find it ever easier to feel the spiritual element behind things. They become ever more spiritual. It is different for someone who especially developed their rational mind when young. They tend to become old prematurely. This is not the fault of the individual, but the karma of the community. A rational person increasingly sunders themselves from the world, and it becomes ever harder for them to understand it. This is why many criticize everything around them. In my youth, they say, everything was beautiful, but all is spoiled now. This grumbling and complaining, this dissatisfaction with everything, and living entirely in childhood memories, is connected with the soul's rational inclinations in youth. For this reason, we must do everything in our power to found education on the broad basis of feeling and sensibility, especially on the quality of pictorial imagination. In our era, humanity in general is sailing in the opposite direction. For instance, the legend of the stork that brings baby is not a lie told to children. It is simply an image, truer than the ideas people think should be imparted to them that a child only originates with its father and mother. The picture of the stork, or other similar tales, points to something in the child that descends from lofty heights. Hearing such tales, the child gazes into regions that are far beyond, physical mundanities, and develops a sense of things from which, at a later age, truth emerges. To regard the picture of the stork as untrue merely testifies to a lack of imagination, to an inability to clothe the process of reincarnation, which cannot simply be described to them prosaically, in a fitting image. It may be objected that children today do not believe this tale anyway, yet this is because the adults who tell it to them do not believe it themselves. The moment I myself do not believe what an image expresses, children will not believe in it either. But if we see in it an image of the reality and truth that underlies it, if we have a sufficient imagination to transform this truth into an image, then children will feel it to be true. Actually, it is a lovely thing to say to a child that a part of them comes from their father, a part from their mother, but other beings carry down a third part from heavenly heights. Bear this upon their wings and entrust it too, father and mother. To say this is very accurate and we are speaking the truth. The astral body of children to whom we impart rich pictorial thoughts is nurtured and we give them the blessing of a youthfulness that will reach far into their old age. This pictorial quality cultivated in education which will also above all underlie children's play infinitely important. Here, too, we can see how karma is already at work within a single life. And so, spiritual science, as it engages in education and culture, will reveal itself to be true in the very way in which life thrives and flourishes in consequences, whereas materialism will display its untruth by rendering life arid and prematurely old. The end of Lecture 2.